Father, we just ask that you would just fill this room tonight. Okay, let's, um, is this on or, is it, on, is it on? No, it's not. Okay. All right, my friends, we have a lot to do today. Uh, I trust everybody got a handout, correct? A new handout for this morning. It's a one-pager. It says, Angels in the Ultimate Chironic Event. That's the one you should have. Very important to have that right in front of you. We will follow it closely because we have so much to do. Uh, Also, there were some, uh, this master copy of this big one uh, on uh, temptation in particular. If you didn't get that, I really recommend you get it because it's important for, well, next week in particular, it'll be very important. So if you didn't get one of these, raise your hand and Cindy will get you one. There's one right there, Cindy. Um... (coughs) Now, isn't that a piece of good artwork there? Again, this week I had such a wonderful time thinking about this, praying about this, and studying. Um, I had refreshed in my spirit fundamental truths that when looked at in this new focus on angels, uh, really excited me and made certain truths stand out in the scriptures. And of course, that's what angels are supposed to do. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but the the word angelos, where we get in English angel, is a Greek word, angelos. And in Hebrew, it's malek. And that's the two terms that are used when spirit beings are referred to in the Bible, angelos and malek. And both of them mean messenger. So, Los Angelos is city of the messengers. We, we know this. Okay, so what they do primarily is convey messages from God to human beings, among many other things. They help us. But today you're going to see how almost everything they do when it relates to Jesus is tied to expanding the scope of his message. Why? Because they have a unique point of view, and you're going to see that today. How do angels look at reality? Have you ever thought about this? They have a point of view. Of course, we're here on earth, and we have a, what would be called an anthropocentric viewpoint, right? Because we're humans, and we look at life from a human point of view, anthropocentrically. What if you could be given the gift of being taken out of yourself temporarily and be allowed to see the way angels look at reality? Now remember, angels are not equal to God, correct? They're creatures. So that means they don't know everything. That means they learn. That means they grow and expand. Now, Relative to us, do they have greater, the same, or less intellectual, spiritual capacities? Greater. So if you, could, if you and I could be given the gift 
of allowing to see reality from an angelic point of view, wouldn't that be liberating? Because it would be a, a, a tool. Obviously, the best way to look at life is how? <laughs> the way God sees things, yes. And of course, would the, you know, and the New Testament does say that we have the, in quote, Jack, what? Mind of Christ, right? We have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is in us because Christ is in us. However, how's that working out for everybody? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I feel the mind of Christ, and then sometimes what? Is this true for you? We're just looking at life from that good old-fashioned anthropocentric North American 21st century point of view. So what God wants to do is expand us and help us to see things from differing points of view. Agreed? Isn't, isn't this a good thing? Uh, uh, God and then the angels, God's servants, come to help us. So they're going to help us today look at things from their point of view. And when we get that point of view in our head, it's going to be very liberating. Now I want to start out today with this old story about Jacob's ladder. Uh, this has become famous in the church, right? Because of why? Sunday school, what is it? There's a song. What is, how do, who can sing well? And I know there's lots of people in this church. Jim. Just give us a, of. We could. Could you lead us and we will all sing it? Wow. All right. Now, this is actually a story in the Bible, Genesis 28. I want you to go there. And we're going to compare 28, Genesis 28 with John 1, 50 through 51. And we're going to see something interesting. Now, <clears throat> Yaakov, Jacob, a good guy. Yaakov, a good guy. Yes and no. Yaakov is a perfect person to get to know if you want to understand yourself. He's a paradigm of the human heart. By the way, do you know what his name means, Jacob or Yaakov? Shyster, uh, sneak, liar, trickster. So what a cruel thing to name your kid, lying shyster. Good morning, lying shyster. It would be great for your self-image, right? Why was he called lying shyster from the, from the birth? He what? Oh, that was later. He got named shyster at birth. He was trying to pull Esau back out of the womb, out of the birth canal, so he could come out first so that he could get... Well, now, of course, this is religious attribution because they're, they're watching this phenomenon. They see this kid holding on to the heel, pulling the other one back, and they say, look, he's trying to hold him back. 
Was he really actually holding him back? You know. So they attribute, they said, well, we're going to call this one lying shyster because he, he wasn't first, but he tried to cheat and get into first place. And why did he supposedly want to get into first place? Because according to Jewish law, the firstborn got a double portion of everything. So if your inheritance was going to be five kids and there was um, uh, $500,000, <clears> okay, <throat> you split that, uh, five ways that would be eighty thousand each. That means the oldest son would get one hundred and sixty, and everybody else divides everything else up. Does that make sense? Why would the older older son get double portion in that culture? There's a reason. What? They had a duty. A duty to do what? To take over from the father and be the uh, pater familias, right? Do you remember that from? Um, um, uh, what, what, what? Not Godfather, no. Uh, the, um, oh, brother, where art thou? Remember that movie? Yeah. <laughs> Pater Familius, the father of the family. It was like a big construct in that movie. What sinks the second verse? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Enough of this messing around. So they, uh, this story now is about Esau when he's older, and he's, uh, he's lived a life of shysterism. Jacob. A Jacob. So sorry. So you with, with me? Uh, verse 11, and I'm reading out of King James too. He lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. He took of the stones of that place, put them down for pillows, lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, what? The angels of God were ascending and descending on his ladder. So he's dreaming, and he's seeing these angels coming from heaven and ascending back up to heaven. Got the picture? And behold, verse 13, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou, thou liest to thee will I give, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What does this remind you of? The Abrahamic covenant, right? Because God promised Abraham that his seed, his descendant, his progeny would do what? Bless the entire world. So even from the beginning of the Bible, when God is telling the story about the Jewish people, the focus is on what? Can you see my world back here? The focus from God's point of view has always been on the whole world, not just Jewish people. And by the way, we have Rabbi Spitzer coming, what, on the, six, the 16th of March, 16, 23, and 30, three weeks, Rabbi Spitzer, a Jewish rabbi, will be coming to this class to teach. So you can ask him about some of these Jewish concepts. But this is embedded in Jewish thought that the Jewish people aren't better than other people, but they've been given an assignment. What is that assignment? From the beginning, what's the assignment of the Jewish people? Well, th 
to produce the Messiah was one big one. And of course, remember the whole thing's bound up with seed, Abraham's seed. So the seed of Abraham is used two ways in the Bible. It's a collective. It's the entire nation of Israel, collective seed. But it's also singular, Galatians 3. The, the seed, the singular seed, who's that? That's Jesus. What was Jesus' role? Why did he come? How does the book of Matthew end? What does the master want to have happen? Go into all the ethnic groups of the world and do what? Make, make disciples. So back in Genesis 28, uh, the dream that Yaakov had, what did God say to him is going to happen to your seed? You're going to spread to, like you'll be like the dust of the earth and you're going to go where? North, south, east and west. It's going to be a global phenomenon. Your descendants are going to be used by me to bless everybody in the whole world. That's what Jacob's ladder's dream is all about. Okay? Now, go over to John 1, 50 through 51 and see how the master uses this story and puts his own Christological twist on it, which he's allowed to do because he's the Christ. (laughs) When you're the Christ, you can put Christological twists on the Bible. So, you remember this story? Uh, Nathaniel is out there dreaming dreams of the Messiah under a tree, and his brothers come running to him and say, we found the Messiah. You gotta come, the one that Moses wrote about, you gotta come, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Nathaniel hears that, he says what? Nazareth? What, what good comes out of that hole? Uh, that's exactly what they saw. And Nazareth was a hillbilly village up north. I don't know what equivalent location you could find in the United States where people look at a place and sneer at it. Where? (laughs) Man. You can't turn off? Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever you want to say, Nazareth was held in lowest regard, and so the idea that the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the Holy One of Israel would come out of Nazareth, preposterous, couldn't be possible. So, kind of awkward a little bit later when Nathaniel and Jesus meet, and the master says uh, in verse 47, Hey, this is a great way of looking at Jesus' personality. He could have said, hey, an Israelite and a real sarcastic slicing one too. But instead he says, hey, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So that's a nice, polite way of saying what? Somebody that is totally socially inappropriate and tells the truth inappropriately because they don't have a sense of um, fakery about them, social politeness, they just let it fly. So Nazareth is a whole, and therefore you can't be the Messiah. So Jesus' response to him is, oh, wow, this guy is really forthright. Inappropriate? Yes, but he, he will tell the truth. And so then Nathaniel is kind of confused, verse 49, he says, well, um, how, how do you know me? 
How would you know about me to characterize me? The master says what? Oh, I, I saw you sitting under that tree. I know what you were thinking. And I would f- flip anybody out, correct? If you met somebody and said, well, yeah, I, I, I saw you 15 minutes ago sitting out in your car, and I know what you were thinking about. I mean, that, that would really shake a person up. So it shakes Nathaniel up so much that he then comes out with an overstatement, I think, verse 50, or 49. Teacher, Rabboni, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. One little sign the Master gives him, and he flips from Nazareth as a whole, and you can't be the Messiah, to you are the, the Messiah. So then Jesus says, Verse 50, he's like, what? Because I showed you one little tiny thing? You're going to get all uh, fanatic and flipped out and go all the whole way? Verse 51, truly I say to you, afterwards you're going to see, what? Heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon... What's the ladder now? The ladder is Jesus. Right? He's making himself the ladder. So he's the the connection between what? Heaven and earth. And the is he's like this big elevator. Like in a mall. And what what, what goes on on the elevator? Angels are ascending and descending. The master is the opening. He's the um, uh, the conduit. He is the, um, what are the what's that term in physics when you have an opening? Oh, he's like the wormhole that lets the reality of heaven come to earth and allows earth to have connection with heaven. Isn't that cool? Jesus did this. He made this. He, he made this connection. So he says to Nathaniel, in effect, you haven't seen anything yet. You're going to see supernatural concurrences of angels coming from heaven to earth and moving from earth to heaven, and they're going to be doing all this activity because I'm here. I'm the latter. I'm I'm the Messiah. Awesome? Okay. So now let's look at the particulars. And what I've done on this sheet, that this individual sheet that I gave you, is to try to put all of the crucial, important um, information about angels and Jesus under four categories. And what I did was use Luke's two-volume set, one and two, as my template. Because I wanted to show you that in Luke's way of looking at things, the angelic activity did not start at the end of, stop at the end of Jesus' ministry. It continued right on in the second volume in the book of Acts. So for the first 65 to 70 years of the Christian movement, it was quite normal on many occasions for, to have angels break through into human history and to do very important things to help both Jesus and the apostles as they were trying to convey this message to the rest of the world. And so this page shows their activity. Now, because of time, I'm going to hit go real fast, and then you can ask any questions that you want uh, as we get into this. But I want to show you the big, big ideas here today. 
Now look on the left-hand column. Angel and Jesus' incarnation. And we'll start down here. This is the foundation of everything, right? When God becomes a human in the person of Jesus. So the incarnation is the big deal. Now how are angels involved in the incarnation? A lot of this is a review for all of you. So on the left-hand column, we have Zecharias, Mary. I'm going to bypass the shepherds for a moment. And then we have two appearances to Joseph. So let's just look at those for a minute. Zecharias, he's, pre- he's a, a priest and he's prepared for whose birth? His own sons, John the baptizer, by a visitation from an angel. He asked a question which is asked in disbelief and not being very open to the supernatural power of God and Gabriel's response to him is, well, since you don't even have the faith to believe me that I'm a messenger from God, here's the sign that's going to help your faith, and that is what? Since you can't speak in faith, you're going to lose the power to speak for a period of time. Okay, so that's one big important thing, to get the family ready for this great event. Number two, Mary. Gabriel gives her what is, in effect, an invitation. By the way, Presbyterians, did Mary have a choice? she said yes, right? Did she actually have a choice? Could she have said, what a great honor to be the mother of the Messiah. However, (laughs) that's kind of inconvenient for my current life plans. Like, That's what I want to know. <laughs> Did, do, do people in the Bible, when they're given these opportunities, are they given good faith choices? Or is it, as they would say in France, a fait accompli? It's already a done deal, and you have nothing to say about it. Here, this is your destiny. Now accept it and be a good Presbyterian. It's like the Presbyterian I heard one time that fell down the stairs. You hear this joke? You ever hear this? The Presbyterian that fell down the stairs and then when he was down at the bottom he said, well, I'm glad that's over with. (laughs) I think that's funny. Yes. (laughs) I laughed. It it would ruin the story if she just said no. It could have, but that's not my question. Could she, did she have a valid choice? Was there a real volitional opportunity here or was she compelled to do it? We don't know if God asked some, but maybe Mary was actually the B choice and in the editing of the Bible we should we know what? She We don't. To the good point. 
God gives us a choice and guides us to the correct choice. Like, for example, if I took one of you and hid you in a room for seven days and you got nothing to eat, and I mean zero, water, so you would stay alive, but no food for seven days. Then I took you to... Um, Benders. Benders, and said, would you like to eat? Do you really have a choice? Yes, you still do. But I've preconditioned you and set you up in such a way that you're almost inexorably going to go for that choice. Is that the way God works? Sometimes. But like in Mary's case, I still think she made a valid choice. It's not, it's not either, you know, it's an important thing for us to get this when, when the incarnation occurs that angels give people opportunities. They give them invitations and they can choose to step into it. Dan, you want to say? Well, hunger is physical, but the Holy Spirit and God are spirit. Yes. So I don't know if we're going to find that kind of spirits at Bender's. No, we won't, but, but God could create a, spir- a spiritual hunger within e- each of us, right? That then when the opportunity is given to us to step into God's call, we would do it much more uh, easier than if it was just cold. So p- presumably Mary's been prepared for a lifetime, and God, then God steps in at the right time. Now, yes, sir? Appeared. Light and everything like that going, I think we just said yes. Um, no, I'm not to have the baby, but, uh, you know. The <laughs> I, I, th- I think you're right. Um, however, I just want to go back to that Paul story. Do you remember what the master said to Paul when he appeared to him? Saul, he said to him in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, it's hard, it's so hard for you to kick against the goads, against the pricks. Do you remember the master saying to this? And it's a farming metaphor. And it's when you stab an animal in the butt with a stick to get it to move, if you're not careful, they do what? They, they kick back. So you gotta you know, quickly, like a matador, step to the side, stab, and then move out of the way. I know this. I've worked on a pig farm. And <laughs> that's what you have to do. So Paul has been being stabbed or goaded or pricked by who? The Holy Spirit plus the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and the early Christians, particularly people like Stephen, right? Who's preaching and his face is like radiating like an angel and Paul sees this. And so every one of these is like a witness to Paul telling him what? Jesus really is the Messiah. They're getting into his head. God, the Holy Spirit, the apostles. And so finally when he does meet Jesus, he's been preconditioned astonishingly to say what? It wasn't just out of the blue. So I think that's how God works with all of us. Yes. Um, I've heard stories of people who became Christians, but they can give you a history of how they said no here and no there and Finally, Thank they you. said yes to Christ. Most people don't say yes to Jesus on the first opportunity. Um, you know, it takes multiple uh, hearings. 
and then growing up in a Christian home is helpful sometimes. Um, it just all depends on the person. But having said all of this, we now have Mary who says yes, and the angel uh, tells her the way it's going to be. Now let's keep going. Then we have two stories with Joseph. And I want to wrap this up because I want to move on. The stories about Joseph are important because why? He's being asked to exercise a degree of faith that would blow the minds of most males. Here's your 16-year-old uh, betrothed, engaged uh, woman, and she tells you, I'm pregnant, and God did it. Come on, the punch of the story is just completely passed over by us. This is a really difficult situation that this guy, and he's a nice guy, so he's not going to do what? No, he's going to divorce her. But he's going to do it in a way that she doesn't get shamed, like there's the, you know, like um, the great American novel, um, the Scarlet Letter, yes! Walking around in a society with what? An A on your chest, adulterous, how horrible. No, Joseph wasn't like that, so he wants to put her away. Now, the angel helps him in what way? He gives him two messages. One, he comes to him in a dream and he says, go ahead and marry her because it's really true what she's saying, God did conceive the child within her. And then, when they were running away from Herod, the angels actually saved Jesus's and Mary and Joseph's life. And it was Joseph that received those messages. To leave Herod's wrath and go to Egypt, and then to come back from Egypt, when to go. So, in the incarnation, how would you sum it up in this era right here? Angels were like hugely instrumental. They, there wouldn't have been any story, any Christian story, if it wouldn't have been for their assistance. Joseph never would have believed Mary, and it would have all collapsed. So they were, they were very important. Now let's go to the next one, uh, temptation. These are just all review. This is the second cat category. Uh, I want to review M Matthew 4.11 here. Uh, how were angels involved in this Jacob's ladder, up and down, ascending and descending on the Son of Man? When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, what does it say clearly that, they, that an angel did? Again, this is review, but I want you to get the big picture here. What, what did an angel do for Jesus? Matthew 4.11. He ministered to him. So here's an example of the incarnate Son of God who's laid aside the use of his own deity. He is still God, but he's not using his divine powers. He's living like a human. He's living in dependence on God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's got all of God living inside of him. He's completely yielded. He's out in the desert. And still, what does he need? He still needs angel help. So uh, he, he's, the angels are instrumental in enabling Jesus to endure and get through these trials so that he can fulfill God's point of view. Now, remember what um, Luke said, the devil left him for a season. Do you remember that? I think you could look at Jesus' whole life as just one ongoing set of temptations and spiritual warfare. If you look down on the second, in the second box, beneath Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, 
second box on the left, look at the um, box that says spiritual warfare. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the casting out of many fallen angels. Even a brief reading of the Gospels, and you come across what? Jesus is constantly doing what? Casting out what we call demons, but we now know also that demons are nothing but what? They're fallen angels. So Jesus constantly was casting out fallen angels. And uh, that's why I gave you this more extensive handout than usual in which I give you all of the views, the spectrum of views on Satan and demons, fallen angels that are held by theologians today and the view that I think is the best. It's really complicated and controversial. But what we find out here is not only at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but then very, uh, very much at the end and all in between. He's constantly undergoing spiritual warfare and angels are either helping him or fighting against him. So he's living in a supernatural world in which in encounters with angel are, are normative. This is not any big deal. His whole life was this way. So what happens in the garden? Luke, uh, remember this? Luke um, uh, 22:43. Um, the master is now at the final edge. He's like Frodo in the Lord of the Rings. He's standing at the edge of the fire. He's got the ring in his hand. And Sam says to him, what? You guys aren't Lord of the Rings fans? <laughs> Let it go. And Frodo says, he's come all this way. All he has to do is drop the, the ring into the fire and evil is destroyed. And he says at the last minute, no, it's mine. It's like incomprehensible. The first time I read that when I was a young person, I was so distraught that I almost had an existential crisis. You get to the end of the book, the, the hero has carried the ring all this way, and at the very end, when he can do it, he says what? No, evil wins. The hero fails. Like, this did not fit my cartoon worldview. That can't be. But here the master does what? He comes right to the edge. God's asking him what? For real, I want you to allow yourself to be captured, crucified, and killed for the sins of the world. And it's like overwhelming. Jesus is just about ready to stroke out. He's sweating blood. What does an angel do? Comes to him and imparts some sort of supernatural energy and strength to him and protection that enables him to be able to say yes to God. Isn't that cool? Now just think about your own life. How does this apply? Have you, any of you ever sweat? What's the English here, Suzanne? Have any of you ever sweat or sweated? What is it? Sweated blood or sweat blood? Has anyone ever sweat blood here? Close, when I was getting my board exam, medical board exam. <laughs> all right, well, we've all had, we all have situations in our life. This is just telling us what? That angels help in the ongoing consummation of God's plan. Now here's a really interesting one. 
Over on the resurrection category, I put all of the things that angels did. This is the third category, angels and Jesus' resurrection. But I want you to go down to the last one, Mark 16, 1 through 8, and to see this very interesting passage. Now, we're going to compare this passage in Mark with a passage over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. Now, the angels appear to the women... And verse 6 and 7 is where I want you to look. And the angel said to them, Do not be affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter. Interesting, right? That he, meaning Jesus, goes before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So, uh, first of all, why does the angel specify, go, women, I want you to go tell the male disciples, but particularly he singles out what? Peter. Why would he do that? He just got done denying him three times. So I want you to make sure that you specifically tell Peter, I'm alive. Not in a mean-spirited way, ha, 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 I rose from the dead, but... It all came to pass, and we all fail. Now, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Where did the angel tell the women to tell the men to go? Where were they supposed to go? To Galilee. That's northern Israel. Where are they currently sitting when the angel gives them this message? They're in Jerusalem. So they got to schlep their way up north approximately 120 to 150 miles to go to Galilee to see what? The master. Now, you can do that drive in approximately four hours in modern Israel. You can bolt out of Jerusalem in a car, slice up north, go right through the heart of uh, the land of Israel and get to uh, Nazareth in approximately four hours. In those days, 120 miles, how long do you think it would take you? A couple weeks, 10 days. 10 days at uh, 12 miles a day, you could do it. 12 miles a day, 20 miles a day. Somewhere between, you're a young strapping young lady. 120 miles? What? You sure? What do you mean you could not do that? You're in the prime of your physicality. 20 miles a day, six days, power walk right up to the Nazareth, right? Yeah. So what does 1 Corinthians 15, 6 say happened when they got there? It takes them a week at least to walk there. They get there, and what happens? How many made the trek? 500 people had enough faith to schlep their way up to Nazareth to see the risen Christ. That means that an angel was responsible for what? To giving the instructions that led to 500 people simultaneously seeing the risen Christ. So you see what the angel did? The angel acted as an agent in such a way that the exposure to and the reality of Christ is risen would have a maximum effect. That's what they're about, to point people to Jesus. Now, 
Uh, those, those of you who have written uh, drug, written, and, uh, written, read literature about drugs, we live in an era in which drugs are very common. People take drugs and they hallucinate. What would happen if you gave 500 people 500 marijuana cigarettes, or as they call them, doobies, and dipped them in LSD, and you gave them to 500 people, and then simultaneously, all at once, in a pastoral, bucolic setting, said, um, people, fire up your doobies. And everybody lit them at the same time and deeply inhaled and smoked them all. 500 people smoking LSD-laced marijuana cigarettes. What would happen? Maybe 500 different uh, hallucinations. hallucinations because <laughs> that, the, the hallucination is dependent on your own brain. So Thank you. Mine is different from yours. A doctor, yes. We know that hallucinogenic psychedelics, what they do is enhance what's already there. So we would get 500 different hallucinations. But because this was reality-based, what did they see? 500 people simultaneously saw the risen Christ. Now, wait a second. How many people could fit in this room? We have how many here right now? We have approximately 50. Could we put another 450 people in here? Be a little tight. Could we, we could easily fit 450 in the sanctuary, right? So what, what a trip that would be. Can you imagine this? We would go all down to the sanctuary and there standing on the stage would be who? The risen Christ. What do you think would happen? What would you do? Come on, tell me. What would you do? There he is, the risen Christ, standing at the front of the church. The answer should be. Would you, you'd bow down? You'd fall down? <laughs> Selfie photos? <laughs> and Jesus, do like this. <laughs> what else do you think would happen? You'd bow down? You'd... Do, do, would, can you envision yourself having enough to use a Jewish word, chutzpah, that you would run up there and um, give, him five. <laughs> give him five or to actually touch him? Sure. Oh, man. It would be so... Now, that all happened because an angel said what? Go, Go there. So you know, I want you to see this. What angels did, they, they were, the angels were trying to maximize the reality of the message of the risen Christ, and so they constructed the scenario and acted as the agents to allow these 500 people. Could it have been 600? There were thousands of people that were in that network that Jesus had touched. Why only 500? They had to have enough faith to get up uh, off their couches in Jerusalem and make the schlep to Galilee in the faith and hope that they were going to see the risen Christ because the master said, do it. So they had faith. Now, yes, John. <coughs> okay.
mean if you did the hallucinatory experience versus Christ? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sad. That's probably kind of true, although it seems at the beginning that the early apostles didn't have those kind of categories in their mind. You were either a follower of Messiah or not. These uh, denominational twisties didn't exist. Now, let's go up further. Um, good news for all. Uh, this is over in the right-hand category, and I want to get to this. Um, I want you now to see the angelic point of view. And to do that, I'm going to ask you to go to Ephesians 2, 14. I, I listed all of the specifics here. But good news for all in angel cosmic view in Luke 2, 8 through 14, I'm going to weave together. Ephesians 2, 14 through 22. This is probably the, one of the most radical and revolutionary ideas in the entire New Testament. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to follow along with me. Ephesians 2. And let's really drill into this. This is very important. Okay, you ready? Verse 14. For Christ is our peace, who has made both one. That means Jew and Gentile, the both and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So there's the perfect illustration right there. Uh, what is that wall right there? It's a, it separates the kitchen from the main room. Now, uh, Brian, would you go please open that door? Now watch him when he does this, because this is what God says that Jesus did when he died on the cross. There was a partition that divided Jews and Gentiles from one another. And when Christ died on the cross, he took that law unto himself. And that means what? That those Gentiles out there <laughs> can now come in and we can have a relationship with each other with Christ standing in the center. Does it make sense? Isn't that beautiful? Now, Look at verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh, you can leave it open, Brian. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances to, to make in himself of two one new what? One new humanity. What is this new humanity based on? Ethnicity? No, it's people, it's good news for all people. Everyone in the whole world is now being issued an invitation to join the second body of Christ. And from God's point of view, the second body of Christ is called the new humanity. What's the old humanity? Well, it had something to do with the law. But what's the old humanity? Everybody that lived prior to Christ, of which some of them can be included in the new humanity. But from Christ on, what is God doing in this world? Different a different covenant and building a new body, a new group of people. Who's in that body? Everybody that wants to be. This is huge. 
So when the Older Testament, how is it set up? God's working primarily with one ethnic group and is telling them, I want you to spread my message to the rest of the people in the world. In the New Covenant, God changes that plan. He's no longer working with an ethnic group. He's working with what? Everybody. This thing, new thing called the body of Christ or the church. And that church is supposed to do something. What's it supposed to do? It's supposed to radiate out this message that God has commissioned to the church, that God is reconciling all people to Christ and including them in this new group of people. And that new group of people is called the new humanity. You have to be born into it. And so angels are particularly interested in this is how they see things. See, they're looking at things from God's point of view and what God's doing on the earth. <coughs> We're learning it from what? From this way, from experience. They're seeing it from above and seeing how God's working this all out. So let's keep reading in Ephesians so that you can see. Um, now, I'm, gonna st I'm going to go down to verse 16 that he might reconcile both, meaning Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by what? The cross, having slain the enmity. What's the enmity? The enmity was the law that separated us from God and therefore separated us from one another. And Jesus slew the enmity of the law when he did what? Died on the cross. He died for the law. He died for our sins. And the law has been done away. So now what's true? Verse 17. Christ came and proclaimed peace to you which were afar off and tend to them that were near. Who were the ones that were near? Supposedly the Jews, right? Because they had all the benefits of the Bible and the traditions. Who were those who were afar off? Supposedly the Gentiles. But it doesn't matter anymore because God's doing what? Out of the whole world, he's uniting everybody in one new humanity. It doesn't matter if you're far or near. Now keep reading. Verse 18. For through him, meaning Christ, we both, who's the both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. So how do we now get to God? By the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables all these people to go in and have a relationship with God. This is, this is God's point of view. Now go to Ephesians 3, verse uh, 10. This whole thing of God reconciling all these people and building a new humanity has a tutorial messaging effect not just to the world, but to the cosmos. Now look carefully at this. 3.10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. Who's that? Who's the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places? The angels. Might be known by... Look at this. This is amazing. How are they going to know something? By what? Verse 10. By the church 
Who's the church? The body of Christ. So you can, these are interchangeable concepts. You could have written the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ, through Jesus' second body, through everybody that believes in Jesus, through this new humanity that he's collecting from every tribe and ethnic group, putting together that church, that body is supposed to do what? Convey something. It does convey something to who? God's wisdom is being taught through you and me individually and collectively to these cosmic rulers, these angels. Now, is that wild or what? So that means if you really want to think like from angelic point of view, this is sort of like a drama on this earth, right? And we have an audience watching our performance. Who's watching? Principalities and powers. Because do they know the end of the story? They know it like, you know, like, who? what's the hottest series on right now? On t- Dalton Abbey. Can you go on Google and read the, the episode by episode scenario and preseason uh, overview of each one of Downton Abbey's episodes? Can you do that? So is it Downton Abbey, is it over now? Yes. Thank God. For this season. For this season. Can Bye you, even week. if you missed it, can you go and read the preseason and find out what happened? So an angel could do what? Theoretically, they know the Bible. They can theoretically read in the Bible of what's going to happen, right? Or they know it somehow. But do they know it, know it, know it like God knows it? No. So if they're wicked, even though they know what the future is predicted, they're still going to do what? Contest and argue about this point of view They may not accept it. Some may accept it. Some may not. But whatever the case may be, God is using the church to spread this message. The angels are learning what God's doing in this world. And all the focus, everything, all the focus is on what? What did we learn today? What did the angels care most about? Who's the latter? (coughs) Jesus. What's the big, 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 big event? What's the ultimate event? His death on the cross and his resurrection. It changes everything for everybody because that event happened. And angels want this message of Christ's death on the cross and the reconciliation that takes place globally. They they want that message maximized. So what the angels, the good ones, do is they intervene at certain key points at God's direction so that this message can have maximum event. And now I want to end with this cute little story that we read every Christmas. And now let's see if you can understand it a little bit better. And I don't mean to sound you know, arrogant by saying that. But Luke 2, 8 through 14. You know the story. It's the story of what? The shepherds. Uh, what is the beautiful little phrase that we use at Christmas? What were they doing at night? Keeping watch over their flocks at night. How sweet and tender. 
So we have a nice little scene of shepherds out in the fields watching little lambs. We read it every Christmas. But what's the significance of it for real? Um, we're at Luke 2, and we're at verse 14. Or, I'm sorry, verse 8. And there, I'm starting at verse 8. And there were in the same country, region shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to the Jewish people. To all people. From the very beginning, at the very dawning of the incarnation, when those angels show up, their view is what? The global, international, trans-ethnic impact that Jesus' birth is going to have, they're not looking at it simply from a Jewish point of view. They're looking at it how? World point of view. Now keep reading. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. They do that because they always enhance the prophecies and the messages so that Christ can be enhanced. The Messiah was promised to be born of David's line and born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. So therefore, the angels note that. Look, it was in David's city, prophecy fulfilled. And this is the sign you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, what? A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill to those that share your political worldview. Right? Now the angels are looking at things, how? These co- they're looking at it downward and they're saying, you understand what this event means? It means God is reconciling all people to God through this event. You can now come home you can be one with all these other people. You don't have to fight anymore. You can have the blessed assurance that you are right with God, and now you can be at peace with who? And that would mean, if this would happen, it would be what? Glory to God in the highest. God would be maximally glorified in this earth. And on, on earth, our, our normative relationships with one another would be what? Peace. Now you see why the angels are so important because stuck in this story, they're giving you what God intended for the plan to, to be, how God intended. Now tell me, true, why is this so hard? God has reconciled all people to himself through Christ, made us all one through the Spirit, gave us the ladder, Jesus. Angels are ascending and descending. They will help us. They love to help us, particularly any time that the message has to cross ethnic barriers. They're always there to help that. Tell me, why is this so hard for us? Because we're all sinners. Well, yes, we're all sinners, but, but God supposedly in, the, in this message is telling you what? Yes, of course you're sinners. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. I understand all that. It's a given. You're totally lost, and I'm going to save you. So therefore, now, once you become in this relationship and you are, in quote, saved, 
What is God expecting? Thank you for saving me. Now I can feel even more confident when I fire my AK-47 into the uh, Islamic terrorists that come into my country. Well, yes, but what is this text, what is this story giving you? Not our purposes, it's telling you what? God's point of view. The angels have come to tell us, God is not mad at any of you anymore. God has reconciled you to, to God through Christ. It's all over, the war's over. And now you can come home and you can be happy and peaceful with one another. Why is this so hard? It's because everybody doesn't believe like we well, yes, of course, but when are we going to get to the place where we say, look, I'm going to lay aside my biases and embrace God's point of view, and I'm going to start looking at the world the way God does. Why can't we do this? Thank you. There are fallen and bad angels that are waging intense war. They don't want this point of view to, be, to prevail. Because the more it prevails, like things could get out of control. Like, good grief, maybe some Islamic Muslims would what? Like, what did Francis do during the First Crusade? Francis of Assisi, does anyone know what he did? He booked passage, went over to the Middle East, booked an appointment with the leading imam of Islam and started having a dialogue with him with a view towards trying to bring Islam and Christianity together. What was he actually, what was he doing? Functioning as a reconciler, peacemaker. Francis of Assisi did this while his brothers were doing what? Quoting a text from Jeremiah, uh, kill them all, and let the Lord separate the good from the wicked. Let's go into battle, and your mandate is what? Slaughter everybody, and let God figure out who the good and the bad were. Meanwhile, Francis is operating on this worldview with the leader of Islam. Why can't we do this? So next week... I want you to think about that. I mean, I'm not throwing out some cheap rhetorical trick Sunday school question. This is, this is for real. Next week, I'm going to show you the final, the finale, the great cosmic war, which, Jim, is your point. There's other dynamics going on, and I'm going to show you. If you really want to be a great student, uh, you can read Revelation 12 ahead of time. Um, that would be super if you could do that. And then we'll try to tie the whole course together and we'll see how angels are now functioning in this world and what it means for you and me. Yes? You need to give the French some slack there because, after all, God went into, he told the Israelites to kill everybody in Canaan. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I agree that history is complicated. But let me ask you a question. You, this message that you heard today, does it seem to you that, that God has refocused us through Christ? Peace on earth to who? All, all people. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. This is the current message. 
not something that happened in Cana uh, 3,500 years ago. God's moved on. All right, now God bless you. Have a great week. Make sure you think about this question.